0: This is the Gospel City Church Podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today.
1: Today's scripture passage is Galatians 2, verses 1-10. through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen.
0: In one of the most iconic uh, speeches in, in all of film, Uh, Mel Gibson, uh, as he plays um, William Wallace in Braveheart, he gives a speech uh, to uh, the Scottish people that they would uh, fight for their freedom, that they would use their freedom uh, to fight against tyranny. And if you know the film, you will remember this scene as Mel Gibson uh, riding this horse uh, speaks uh, to the people And so he asks, what will you do with your freedom? Will you fight people? Will you fight for your freedom? And one guy says, no, against them. I will not fight. We will not fight. We will run and we will live. Do you remember the scene? We will run and we will live. And this is where... Uh, Mel Gibson says it so well, I fight and you die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days, from this day to that, for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. But you just want to like yell, like, yeah, like, let's die for our freedom. It's a speech that has resonated for many people for quite some time, even though uh, this film is quite old. And it's because the idea of freedom is something that resonates for all generations, not just this generation. But for our generation, freedom means a lot. Freedom means freedom for those who are enslaved. So we think about the millions and millions of people, the children, the women, the men who are enslaved, and we think about freedom for them. And there's this movement to end modern-day slavery. We think about it in terms of North Korea. And as we think about the, the tyranny that exists there, the oppression, the, the inability to have their choices. We think about freedom, and so churches and NGOs, they pray, they, they spread awareness about what happens in North Korea. For those of us who came from the U.S., we're very proud that we live, that we came from the land of the free. Though it has obviously its many problems, the one thing that we can all agree on is that the freedom that it, at least it tries to give to the people is a great great thing and paul in this passage what's so fascinating is that as he talks about the faith in this moment as everything is changing as christ has come as christ has ascended as, as God has given him the gospel, uh, given him clearly what the gospel is, as these people are trying to take this gospel away, what he says is, don't take away our freedom. In essence, what he is saying is, I will fight and I will die for this message of freedom. So that's what we're looking into today. Freedom is specifically not in terms of how an American or a Korean would see it, freedom in terms of what does God think about in terms of freedom? How does God understand freedom? How how does he want us to live? And so first, we're going to look into this idea of providence. How in this journey towards freedom, you'll see that even this message of freedom, this gospel, the providence that surrounds it, that's not simply a man on a mission, that's God on a mission, and there is this providence. And so in verse 1, if you can look with me, it says, Then after 14 years, 14 years probably after his conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. You know, when I read uh, just this passage, you know, I, often when I you know, do my study, I read it, and then I write my questions down. What, what is happening? And so as I read uh, you know, in, in preparation for today, it says that he was doing something for 14 years. So I thought about what was happening. I read through Galatians, didn't really find much. I thought about different ways in which he's spoken in, in the past. What did he do these 14 years? Couldn't recall started re- reading the commentaries, thinking that the commentaries will give me an idea of what these 14 years were filled with. You know what I found? Not much. Not much. Quite silent about what happened in these years. People speculate that he was with Barnabas, he was with Titus, so he was probably doing ministry. But others will say, well, these 14 years, he was just waiting. He was waiting for the call. So that all this time after he heard the gospel, after he received it, for 14 years, he was waiting, and so the commentators, they debate. But no one knows what happened. And so for me, my question is simply, why, is it, why did it take him 14 years to get to this stage of meeting the other, other apostles? This was a critical moment in Christian history that Paul would be affirmed with the gospel that he received, that these other apostles hear his gospel and say, yes, that is right, continue on your mission. So the question to me is why? And the Bible is silent. The Bible is quite silent. And in this, you start to see the mystery of God's plan. The mystery of God's plan. There is no need for the author to describe why. Paul doesn't feel a need to share what happened in these 14 years. And it's these aspects about Scripture for me, I have so many questions. But at the same time for me when I read it, it's also comforting. Because what it shows is simply a historical account. If someone created these this account, they wouldn't leave these random numbers or or dates, for us to try to figure it out. Because if someone was making it up, it'd be pristine, it'd be clear, it would lead to no questions. And so in here we see a little bit of this mystery. But right after the mystery of what happens in these 14 years, there's clear sovereignty, clear providence, right? In verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Just within several words, what do we see? Mystery and providence. Mystery and sovereignty. And that's what you see throughout Scripture. A lot of questions, and then God clearly, certainly, precisely moving. It's this mystery and this sovereignty. It goes hand in hand. And then it leads to, in verse 2, I went up because of of a revelation Set before them, though privately uh, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So now he's even in question, or at least he's questioning what's going to happen. And in this moment, we're brought into his thoughts, this mystery, what happened to these 14 years. And then God clearly moving his providence, and then him questioning, as everything that I'm doing, is it in vain? And it's interesting for for us to hear Paul speak in that way, in this place of uncertainty. And that's often what life is like, and that's often what ministry is like. There's mystery, why does this happen? There's moments where you see God's providence. In hindsight, you recognize, oh, that's clearly what God was doing. And here, we recognize for Paul, this man of God who has revealed the gospel, in this moment, he fears that everything that he does could be done in vain. And what does that mean? For him, he knew that the gospel that he received was inerrant. It was accurate. So when he says that he was running in vain or he feared that he was running in vain what he is saying is that if the jewish apostles don't agree with me if they don't affirm me that's it's going to greatly hinder my ministry it's going to greatly frustrate my ministry and what i find so interesting is i know paul i know paul that he knows that god is sovereign I know Paul that he knows that what he does is truly not in vain because for example in 1 Corinthians 15:58 he says therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is what not in vain he says it again Philippians 2:16 holding fast to the word of life so that in the In the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What this shows us is even for Paul, the mysteries of God, even though he knows that God is sovereign, there's going to be times in your life that you will feel like it's in vain. Now Paul knew. That even if the Jewish apostles did not initially affirm, he knew what God was doing. So he knew deep down inside that that the mission would continue on. But he felt like it's going to be a lot harder. And that he would feel like all this is in vain. What does this teach us? It matters that you know that your ministry matters. It matters that you know your ministry matters. If you feel like your ministry, your presence, your praying, your loving, your sharing the gospel, if you feel like it's purposeless, there's no fruit, that it doesn't matter, your efforts, your desire, your heart, all of it, it wanes. And what this shows us is even... This man like Paul, it mattered for him that he felt like his ministry mattered. That's ministry. Often filled with mystery, and then in moments of clarity, you see clearly God's providence, how he was working. And the challenge and the invitation is in the midst of it all. Know that your work is not in vain. It feels like it, but know that it's not in vain i've met many missionaries especially recently from china they went to china they had a heart for china many of these missionaries have been there 10 20 years 30 years because of different restrictions that have changed a lot of these missionaries have been pushed out kicked out and you talk to them they miss their friends i know one brother he still has all his stuff in his storage space back in China. Thinking about, is he ever going to be able to go back? And for someone like him, the challenge will be, Was were all those relationships that I was investing in, all those prayers that I pray, prayed, is it in vain? You'll feel like that. You felt like that in the church as there's transition. And you'll wonder what's happening. And the challenge will be, even in the midst of missionaries transitioning, pastors transitioning, the question is, do you know that even in the mystery of it all, God is sovereign and that none of it is ever in vain? And the invitation is for you in your hagwon, in your school, for you to know that your prayer, when you say hi to those students, those students, It matters. So even this week, to know that even though you feel like it's in vain, to know that even through all the mystery, God is sovereign and he will use you. When I talk with older believers, the idea of God's sovereignty, they talk about it a bit differently. I'm sure you've, you've understood that as well. You know, in your 20s, when you're trying to figure out what, you know, what to do with your life, you apply for that job, you don't get it. You know, in your 20s, you're filled with anxiety. I found many older people, when when something really difficult happens at work, and I talk to them about it, often there's this sense of ease, this sense of comfort, where they say, you know, God's sovereign, right? Well, if God's sovereign, then it's okay. And I hear that amongst older people a little bit more. Is it that they know more about God's sovereignty in terms of doctrine and theology? Maybe not. What's the difference? They've experienced it. They've experienced that when things don't turn out in life, when they don't get that job or promotion that they want, when something bad happens, they recognize over the months, right, over the years, in hindsight, it's all okay. There is this peace. They're able to let go. They're able to move on. They're able to not get bitter. They're able to, what, sleep at night because of, God's providence, and in this, what you see is even for Paul, there were moments where he wrestled. But as this, as this, as you know, we see in this moment, this fight for freedom, even for him, to all these questions that he had, that there is something about God's providence that all of us can rest assured in. That's gonna be okay. Whatever happens to you, whatever happens to that missionary, whatever happens to any church. It's always going to be okay. But from the sovereignty of God's freedom, we also see now a picture of it. It's this little glimpse that we get of what this freedom in Christ looks like. You see, in verse 3, it says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. It shows this person, Titus. We don't know much about him, but we know that he was a minister. And the idea of Titus coming to faith, the Judaizers wanted people like him to get circumcised. They felt that for a Gentile to become a believer, that a Gentile must have that mark of circumcision. And that's what it really meant to be a believer. And it says in here that Titus, though a Gentile, was not forced to be circumcised. And that little picture right there may not mean a lot, but it changes how we understand the gospel. It changes how at least they understood the gospel and it nuanced what it meant to truly be free. Because right after this, how does he describe it in verse 4? Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they they might bring us into slavery. Isn't it interesting? Spy out our freedom? And it sounds like, you know, something that you would see in a Bourne movie, right? Something that you would see in some Hollywood film. These spies coming in, oh, what is this freedom that you have? You would think about maybe North Korea coming into South Korea. What do you see? People who don't understand freedom in Christ looking into their lives, thinking, what does, what does this look like? So they're so curious to spy out our freedom and he doesn't call it doctrine he doesn't call it the gospel here he doesn't call it truths beliefs he calls it our freedom because the doctrine the truths the gospel what it all leads to is freedom and like william wallace who would fight for freedom even die for it here this is his in one sense william wallace moment freedom matters Freedom matters. Because as we all know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, how is someone actually saved? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. A couple weeks ago I preached on this idea of the almost gospel. What's the almost gospel? Jesus plus works equals salvation. That's how the Judaizers understood it. Yes, Jesus came. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, believe in him and get circumcised. And once you believe in Jesus and you're circumcised, then you have salvation. Then you have freedom. If this is the gospel that was preached, if this is a gospel that would have been believed, what it in reality would mean is Jesus plus works, Jesus plus circumcision equals slavery. And so for for Paul, this was a freedom issue. It's what commentators would call a Torah-centered faith that you know the Torah and you live and abide by the Torah and you receive salvation by the Torah. And so Torah-centered thinking is circumcision. For us, maybe we would consider it works-centered faith. What's a works-centered faith? I must be religious enough. If I'm religious enough, then God will accept me. If I don't sin and I live a good enough life, then God will accept me. If I'm good enough, then God will accept me. And you know what? It's all true outside the gospel. Outside the gospel, that thinking is all true. Outside the gospel, you have to love God and love your neighbor perfectly. And just to help you understand what does gospel-centered faith mean versus what does work-centered faith mean, let me just clarify. Let's just move gospel-centered thinking aside and just kind of lay before you. This is what law-centered thinking and faith looks like. Outside the gospel, you must love God perfectly. You must love others perfectly perfectly. You must love your neighbor like the good Samaritan. You must perfectly use your time, your money, your resources to take care of all your responsibilities. And you must help, serve, and give generously to the poor and to the needy. You must not lust, but you must love. You must keep your word. Your yes must be yes, and your no must be no. You cannot waver, but you must be true. You must say what you mean, and you must mean what you say, and you must follow through with those words. You must not retaliate, but forgive and be generous in your forgiving. You must not hate. You must not be apathetic, but you must love your neighbor you must be compassionate sympathetic and be gentle that's what it looks like to live outside the gospel and your salvation depending on you you must do that every day every moment in your heart and in your life that's a work-centered this salvation depends completely on you mentality not only that, that's only that love your neighbor part. Now let me get to the love your God perfectly part. You must live for God's kingdom and nothing else. You must not live for earthly treasure. You must not live for your reputation. You must not live for yourself. You must live for God and his kingdom and his kingdom alone. You must fast. You must fast regularly. You must read the Word and meditate on it day and night, every morning, every afternoon, every evening. Your heart must not just do it, you must love it. You must pray unceasingly. And not just mumbling out words in your heart, praying to the Lord. In any times when there are un- there's uncertainty, you must not be anxious, but be able to trust the Lord in all those ways. And you must do all of this, not for yourself, not to earn anything, but simply because of pure heart and devotion, because you love the Lord. Because there's this one thing that we know from the parable of the, of the, of the, of the uh, prodigal son, the older son did all the good things. He obeyed the Father perfectly. But in the end, why is he damned? He's damned because he did it all for himself, for his inheritance. So everything I just said, you don't even do it for yourself, you do it for the Lord. And you recognize he is the only one worthy of it all. You got to do everything I said just perfectly perfectly. And only if you do it perfectly every day, every evening, for the rest of your life, from the beginning of your life, only then will God accept you. That's a works-centered faith. Now, do you see why Paul considers this slavery? Do you see how even hearing all that you have to do, what happens to your heart? it shrinks does it not the weight of the law the weight of how you must live isn't it unbearable and what paul is saying here is when you tell titus to get circumcised you're misunderstanding the gospel so then what is a gospel-centered faith If outside the gospel you have to love God and love others perfectly, this is the pure gospel. Inside the gospel, how do you live? Inside the gospel, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because of what Christ has done. If Christ did not come to live the life we couldn't live and die to death we should have died, we're hopeless. But because God did come and he became man and he did live that life and on the cross, he took upon our penalty. This is the gift. It's God's great sacrifice. It's his great gift. And anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Not just to live eternally, but to know him. To walk with him. That's the gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The almost gospel is Christ plus works equals salvation. What's that in reality? The reality is Jesus plus works at the end of the day is slavery. You know you are never doing enough. The gospel is simply Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That there's nothing that you can do that in, so that he would love you more, and there's nothing that you can do so that he would love you less. If you're tracking with me, you should start to feel uncomfortable. I do, all the time. Because you know what? where my thoughts go? Wait, so you're telling me I can do anything that I want. From here on out, God will love me because of what he has done in Christ. Essentially, yes. If you feel uneasy, if you feel like this is too risky, if you understand this truth and you know how it can be abused and it's this uncomfortable feeling that you have, You're understanding the gospel. You're understanding what Paul was contending for. It's what people have called a gospel revolution. It's what people have called a grace awakening. It's understanding this. You start to question, isn't it too free? Shouldn't there be more strings attached? Shouldn't we use more fear? Isn't it too risky? Can't this be abused? This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones would respond to that. A conservative pastor, before our time, he says this, There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. If you understand the gospel, you end up coming into this really weird place where you start to feel uncomfortable because you know the freedom given to you because of the work of Christ. Now, does this mean we can sin or we should sin? Paul talks about it because people back then were asking, well, if that's grace, shouldn't we sin all the more so that grace will abound all the more? And he says what? By no means. And so we'll get into that in the coming weeks of how this actually all works. But simply for here and today, the challenge is learn to live free. Not legalistic faith, not trying to earn something, but to know that you are before you, you are free. You can do whatever you want because of the gospel, but learn to live free. In the movie uh, Shawshank, Morgan Freeman plays this man who lived and, 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 and grew up in, in prison for basically most of his life. He's set free. And as he's set free, he doesn't know how to live free. Even though he is free, he doesn't know how to actually be free, to live free. So he continues to go about all the old ways. When he's, at, when he, when he, when he's a grocery clerk at a store, he would always ask the manager, Manager, can I, can I go to the bathroom? can I get permission for this? Can I get permission for that? And he can't get inside his head. He is a free man. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. It's scary. What's so much more comforting is that when you have control over your salvation, when you start to put your security in the legalistic ways that you've grown up, what Paul would say is, learn to be free. Learn to be free. And so lastly, and very quickly, we see a glimpse of this, this life of freedom. This life of freedom. That the way in which God that the gospel works in our lives, it actually allows us to love even more so than all the laws put together and before. So in verse six, this life of freedom, he says, from those who seem to be influential, what they were what What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. What he's talking about is the Jewish apostles had no desire or need to put their imprint on the gospel. And this is a different way in which how the world works. You see, the way the world works is they want their imprint, their fingerprint and all these things. They want the influence. They want the power. But for these Jewish apostles, when Paul comes and shares the gospel, for them it's as simple as, yes, that's the good news. Now go. Share. Share the gospel. Right? There is no, okay, 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 well, you're just you're just you're just getting started. Now let, let us put our fingerprint on it. Let, let us put our trademark on this. No, it's not that. Why? Because they receive it by grace, so now they treat other people with grace. For Paul was the one, just in the verses before, they recall, he was the one persecuting us. You know what that means? Everything everything that I just said about loving your neighbor, they just did it. This man that was after their lives, this man that was persecuting them, even having murdered Christians, it's this man that they accept. And they give the right hand of fellowship. Why? Because they understand grace. God has saved me. God has entrusted me with the mission. He's done that for you, Paul, as well. Gives them the right hand of fellowship. Saying, yes, we affirm the gospel. It's the same gospel that we have. Now go. And that's why at the end of verse 10, it says, just remember the poor. It seems like it's out of nowhere. But this is the Christian life. Once you understand the grace by which you have been saved, your heart will always continue its tendency to those who are marginalized. To those who need grace, to those who didn't have a chance in life, you will always go out to them. And specifically what they're talking about here are the Jewish Christians in this famine that they were in. Saying, as you go out to the Gentile world, go, share the gospel. It says, remember the poor here. Remember we're family. Remember that we're a family of Grace. He does everything that the law was required of them, not because they had to fulfill it, but once you understand the gospel, your heart is changed. Now you have love. Now you have joy. Now you have peace. Now you can go out and love. And what Paul is contending for is not a sinful life, a free free to sin. He's contending for a gospel-centered life. Once you know the gospel, your heart is changed. You are humble. You don't fight for glory, but you fight for grace, and you give to those who are in need. You see, grace, when it's understood in our heads, this is what's going to happen. If you simply understand grace in your head, but you haven't experienced it in your heart, you're going to continue to abuse, want to abuse the grace because you understand the concept of grace. It's free. It's a gift. But if your heart's not changed, it's going to want to use that grace for selfish things sinful things but once grace is understood in the heart in that heart that's dry and parched in that heart that understands that it's only lived for itself that it cannot love god it cannot love people once that heart understands the law and how it cannot complete it when it tastes grace when it hears grace there is no no sound that's so sweet as grace And that's what Paul's contending for. That you would not live a law-centered life, but a gospel-centered life. That the gospel is something that has saved you and is working within you today. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centred churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.